Hello, welcome to another episode of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by HowToLicenseYourMusic.com. If you want to learn how to make money licensing your music in television shows, films, ads, and more, check out my website, HowToLicenseYourMusic.com. When you go there, there is a link to get a totally free 202-page ebook all about how to make money licensing your music in TV and films. It's totally free, no strings attached. Again, go to howtolicenseyourmusic.com. Before we get started, a quick announcement. I have a small favor to ask of all of you listening to this podcast. I've been doing this podcast close to three years now, going on three years, and I've been getting greater and, and better and more interesting guests the more I do, uh, do this. If you like this podcast and you want me to keep making these, these episodes, do me a favor. Go to iTunes and look for me on iTunes. The name of the podcast is Music, Money, and Life. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe to my podcast on iTunes. And if you can, please leave me a review in iTunes. The more positive reviews we get in iTunes, the higher we go up in iTunes uh, search engine. And the more people that will find this podcast in the better uh, more informed, more educated guests I'll be able to bring on in the future. With that said, let's get to today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. Really excited today to be speaking with Greg Latterman, the uh, CEO of Aware records. Um, this is going to be an interesting podcast for me for a couple different reasons. One, Aware is based out of Chicago. Um, I'm a fellow Chicagoan. I'm from Chicago. So it's interesting to me on that front. It's also also interesting, and, and maybe we can start here, Greg, but you, I went to, to Berkeley. I was a songwriting major in, in the 90s. And so I remember watching when you signed an artist who went by the name, who who goes by the name Blue, B-L-E-U. And I remember sort of reading about him being signed to Aware and watching him go on the road with artists like John Mayer. And it really looked to me like he was on the verge of of really making it big. I mean, he had great songs. He had a song in the Spider-Man soundtrack. So for whatever reason, it never really seemed to happen. I mean, so I mean guess, guess who's the one that introduced me to Blue and said, you got to sign this guy. I think he's amazing. I want to help him. Guess who it was? Um, was it John Mayer? It was John Mayer. Yeah. Was it really? So how did how how did John Mayer discover Blue? I I don't know. Maybe through his Berkeley roots or something. But he 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 was like, this guy's amazing. You got to hear him. Um, whatever I can do to help. You know, Blue even stayed with him a little bit. So. I can't remember what the connection was, but he was initially super gung ho, and you know we kind of. He is, I, I most of the artists that I signed or managed, we broke massive. Blue is one of those artists that everything was there, yeah. and I would have bet everything that it was going to be successful. I think we made a great record. We had the right producer. We like everything was there. Yeah. Um, do you know he's like 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 a world class chef as well? I didn't I didn't know that. No, he's an interesting guy. I mean, I didn't know him real well, but we were acquaintances. We hung out 
a little bit at you know during our Berkeley days. But I didn't know that. But the album you're talking about, Redhead, was a phenomenal album. I, oh, yeah. I, I love that album to this day. So since this is a licensing conversation, I should bring up that one of the best events we ever did, um, we did in Chicago at my house in Wilmette. Mm-hmm. It was a licensing event. The, the head of Sony licensing, Paula Erickson, flew in, and we got all the great advertising Chicago people to come to my house, and Blue cooked and then played for them. No way. And the 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 kicker to the whole thing was we ended up having our third child early uh-huh. um so my wife had a had our third child this is 2005 and she was literally going to be coming from home from the hospital the day of the event and my wife said don't cancel it just do it i'll just stay upstairs so we had like 30 licensing advertising people in town and our head mm-hmm. of license for all of Sony and she still runs it Paul Erickson and we had Blue cook this amazing meal, and then he played in my living room. With <laughs> that, that's awesome. Then three-year-old son upstairs, who's now 11. So we had that record set up. We made the right record. We did all the right things, and it didn't work. So you want to know why? Of course. I think it was too smart in a way. Like yeah. the lyrics were too smart, and in the in the it was just a little too it was a little too far. It's like. And that's kind of how Blue is. If we, if we, if he would have dumbed it all down a bit, I think it would have been higher chances of, of succeeding. We all were so confident it was going to take off. We did yeah. get a lot of licensing on that record. It just did not fit radio at the time. It didn't fit AAA. It didn't fit Hot AC. And, and it would have fit Top 40 if we could have found a way to bridge to it. And we just, it just wasn't fitting at the time. So the, the record didn't – we couldn't get the right traction on it, but it was one of those records – that people loved. Yeah. Um, did you ever know Wheat? What is it? Did you ever know the band Wheat? W H. Yeah, I I remember you were affiliated with them at one point. Oh yeah, that's the dude, that's the other record like Blue that's unbelievable that should have happened. Everything was in the right place. They're actually from somewhere around New England as well. Those are the two records I'd say, and another record that are just like the two that like everything was there. And I would have bet on them, and they just we just didn't get them, and and they got shot. Like we did everything we could do, in my opinion, to make them connect, and they just didn't get the traction we needed. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I mean, it seems like in Blue's case that he's gone on to, he has a pretty illustrious career as a songwriter. I know he's written for the Jonas Brothers and Demi Lovato and all these people. But and by the way, you know how that happened? That's that's. So I introduced him to John Fields, Mm -hmm. who was his producer for that first record. Who's all those artists? initial producer so so all that's the good news of this is that the relationships that he's built and made a career actually came from the the producer i introduced him to john field so that that's the good news in this is that if you're a good person and you're talented you actually do figure out a way to have a career and that's what blue's done you know when he's been introduced to people he made it work Exactly. It seems like he's parlayed his writing skills into a, a very viable career. But no, that's really interesting. I, I loved his music. I was I was surprised that he didn't go further. But let's talk um, about some of the other artists that, that you've worked with over the years that have gone on to mainstream success. Artists like John Mayer, Five for Fighting, Train. Um, when were, were these artists signed to Aware? And uh, why are they not I- I- any longer? I'm curious to find out what's uh, happened well, since then. So, so on my label side, I had a you know a joint venture with Columbia Records. And so every couple of years, 
um, my deal would end and they'd either buy out my part. And then, you know, usually every couple of years at those times, you know, first artist we signed was Train and then Five for Fighting, then John Mayer and Matt Carney and stuff. So every couple of years my deal would end. And so they'd usually either buy out my part, they'd usually buy out my piece and then we'd mm-hmm. roll into a new deal. Okay. So it's it's just the way the deals work. Um, so it's all good news because everything went well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so in time, you know, I don't have, I'm not active with those artists anymore because they've, um, and the cool thing is Train just actually completed their deal with Columbia. I, I think that's public, but they got this, what, six, seven records, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and John's probably pretty close, five, six, I think, on Columbia as well. Um, so yeah, so, so the, on the label side, it's just how the contracts would work at a certain point. Um, I would get bought out. So, cause the t- just cause of the timing, right? I have to buy them out, but they always bought me out. And so you functioned as a subsidiary of Columbia. Is that how it worked? And then, no, you- I, I, I gotta be, I, I can't, I, I, I can't use all that language. It's cause, okay. it, cause the, the deals evolved, you know, mm-hmm. the first deal mm-hmm. I had wasn't as good of course as the second or third deal. So it eventually ended up into a joint venture. It would not be a subsidiary because they did not own us. But the 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 once again, I have to have a lawyer on the phone. But like the the equity was more in the artist than me. If that makes sense. Okay, I think I follow you. So you you functioned more. Would it be fair to say you were some the role you played was similar to that of a manager? No. But I was a manager for tons of you know another fifteen hours. So no, we 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 physically signed the bands to us, and then and then they automatically went into Columbia Records. But they it went it flowed through us. So what happens? You said at this point that that Train has finished their the records they owe Columbia. Do you know right. what, what they're going to do next? Will they stay with Columbia? Will they sign with somebody else? I don't know. I think like like I said, I I. I don't think I'm talking out of turn, but they they did a Christmas record uh, straight through Amazon last year, and they did a I think a Led Zeppelin record in the spring straight through somebody as well. They did like you know digital and physical, so I don't know what they're doing. I I I really don't. But they did those two records on their own, um, and I assume their next their next uh, big record, you know, their next major label, they'll either go back to Columbia or. My guess, I go talk to Steve Barnett at Capital since he was a long time head of Cap uh, Columbia, um, but they'll find somewhere great that that will do a good job with them. So I'm sure they'll. Um, uh, they'll... And I have nothing to do with the end of those contracts, so I, I, I'm just pretty sure that's what happened. So I should, okay. I should be careful what I'm saying. Okay, well, fair enough. Let's let's do this, Greg. Let's back up. I know you only have about yeah, yeah. thirty minutes, and there's a few different things I want to cover with you. Be, you know, before you yeah. have to run. You started Aware in 93, and I, I know you started by making compilation, was it tapes at that point? Nope, it was CDs. I was living in Back Bay, and a, a friend of a friend at Berkeley I met and told me how this all works, music business works, and I said, oh, I know all these great bands from all over the country, because um, I grew up ski racing, and I had friends so I would actually make tapes and send them to my friends and then from that I learned I, I discovered all these great bands and so I got to a point where in 93 I'm like I know every great band that's unsigned mm-hmm. let me put together a commercial CD and then a friend of a friend from Berkeley actually had a studio in his basement apartment sort of literally gave me a bunch of his um, 
books on legal and all that, and I learned how to put it all together. Um, and I put out a compilation and quit my job and moved to Colorado to coach for the ski team in Vail um, while I was building up the company. Cool. And then you started making these compilation CDs. How did that? How did you parlay that into Aware Records? So super quickly, they took off. The first one sold 30,000 copies. I put the second one out as I started my MBA at Northwestern, and it had uh, Hooting the Blowfish. Other than that, it basically had 10 bands that went platinum. Wow. Ten out of the twelve. Sorry, ten out of the twelve bands ended up getting signed. Like four or five went platinum. Dave Matthews was on it as a duet, um, and so it just exploded. So that one sold twenty, thirty thousand immediately, and every label in the world was coming to me saying we want to do a deal with you. And I said no, 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 no. And then I graduated from Kellogg a year later from Northwestern with an MBA. Decided to um, I saw these bands get massive by then. Matchbox twenty. I had on my compilation, like I said, Matchbox, you know, Matchbox, Hootie, all these bands, and I'm like, well, maybe I do need to get involved. And look, not only am I finding them, now I'm building relationships and a network. Why not the next ones I find, sign them, and and have a relationship with a major label and be able to continue with this, you know, both for emotional reasons to be involved with them, but also financial. So um, I had said no to all the labels for a minute. Actually consulted for Lava for a year, MCA for a year, and then got to a point where we figured out a way to do a deal with Columbia where I could stay in Chicago, keep doing what I was doing, but when I found the next great band, um, we kind of had a, a system to prepare them. Um, so by the time we put them out on the major label, we'd have momentum. And that's what we did. Gotcha. You kind of helped launch their career before they moved on to Columbia. Yeah, because like by the time we signed Train... I was putting out my sixth compilation. I put out one a year, and I was we were doing tours. We were doing like I was like the nucleus for all the unsigned bands because the internet really didn't matter and we weren't feeling it yet. So mm-hmm. it was all word of mouth and grassroots. So I was like the connector. If you're a band from Texas and you wanted to go tour the whole country, I could actually hook you up with bands that mattered and you could trade dates and all that stuff. So I became this nucleus for that. So when I found a band, Train, we were able to put them out. Um, and play in front of a thousand people a night, first to four, and we built their um, their their base off that. And then same thing with John Mayer and everything else. We were able to kind of piggyback all these other bands, and and not to mention on top of that, I had a massive grassroots. I had five thousand college reps by then, who were all helping us. Um, when I found what I thought were great bands, help us get them exposed prior to needing radio and video and and all that stuff which evolves into later, but that's that's how I started. Nice. And how are you, like you you mentioned this one compilation that sold like 30,000 units. How that was are, the first one, yeah. Yeah. How were you promoting them back then? How were you able to move so many units pre Well, the, the, the simple answer, well, there's no simple answer, but, you know, the first one had 10 bands. All the bands had to sell the compilations at their shows. Okay. And in turn, the bands would basically trade with me. So I'd give them a box of 30 CDs. They'd give me a box of their CDs. Mm-hmm. I was the first online record store. We actually went live on the inter- on, on the web on, in 95. Mm-hmm. So I was carrying all these band CDs, and they in turn would sell our CDs on the road. And the okay. front cover had a miniature version of all the bands. So basically all the bands were helping expose the other bands. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then I, I basically sent... Um, the best hundred indie stores 
10 free copies of the compilation in the band's markets. And from that, a bunch of the stores exploded, especially Birmingham, Alabama, and Atlanta, and Raleigh. And um, and then from that, I got distribution, like, overnight. And so um, I was, like, in I was nationally out almost, you know, right away. Yeah. No, that's, that's... It took off and became a brand. And, and we also had our 5,000 reps buying them for, you know, cheap and selling them like you know like amway so i we, we were hitting it from all sides bands um people on the streets plus stores that we were selling them every way that's really cool that's really smart so you so the so you're all kind of promoting each other there's this yep. cross promotion going on do you think something like that could work today in today's marketplace um well not the compilation part but not not really because the problem and this can get to why I'm not in the music business anymore. Yeah. You know, you, it's not monetized anymore. So anything great you can find, especially if it's not signed. So you could do it for the exposure purposes, um, but not the finding. I mean, I, I still meet people that tell me that, you know, all their spending money they made from selling CDs in college, you know, from their dorm room. Yeah. So um, I, I, we don't value music that way anymore to monetize it but i think there's there's things that they could do but but it wouldn't it's not the same model you know right it was much better then yeah so we should well that that brings up the, the next point i wanted to touch on which is you mentioned before we started recording this that you're sort of phasing out of the music business are you shutting down aware I, there's nothing to shut down um yeah. You know, there's assets and things, but I, I have no active band. So, so by the way, I also evolved in 1999 to a management company. Okay. Glenn Phillips from Total West Bracket was our first client. I think Liz Fair was our second. We wanted to manage the fray, um, Michelle Branch, and um, Jack's Mannequin, Brandy Carlisle. So we ended up building a pretty big management company as well. Um, and so just over the last four or five years, um, I actually went back and got a master's in psychology at Penn as well okay. a couple of years ago. And so I've just slowly, as band cycles ended, um, parted ways with them and their day-to-day people and found the best home for them and stuff. So I've slowly um, shrunk our company um, and, and just just finished the last one. So, um, and, that, and by the way, that... that doesn't mean I'm going to be out of the music business. It just means I'm out of the day-to-day music business, and and I've been kind of waiting to see what happens in in with the digital world. And I, I I'm starting to see um, what I want to what I may do next. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back mm-hmm. to the roots. I'm I'm without getting too detailed. I'm extremely involved in the, in the tech and startup world, and so I teach entrepreneurship at Northwestern. I have to teach entrepreneurship for the arts as well. Oh, cool. Um, and, and, and we look at how um, digital disruption, um, what that does to, to the entertainment industry. So yeah. I've taught that for the last couple of years. So at some point, I'll probably come back into the music business and kind of connect it with this other world I live in, Silicon Valley and Chicago and Boston startup and tech with with sort of the roots. But it's not – my opinion is we're not quite there yet um, as far as how – everything's working but i think the streaming gets a little bigger and as we get more companies big companies involved i think the model will be closer so so all i've done is more like the day-to-day business it's like i don't have any bands um 
assigned to the label per se anymore that are active, and, and I don't have any active management stuff anymore. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to be involved in the future. It's just sort of the transition. <laughs> That's the best way, to, the easiest way to put it. Got it. No, that makes sense. I mean, it, 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 am I fair to say it sounds like what you're saying is you you've sort of temporarily stepped aside from the music business to a certain extent to sort of wait for things to improve am i yeah yeah, yeah. That, that that's that's definitely a good way to put it and also to be to be completely honest with you you know going to where i started in the business um i started you know i wanted to find something that i love doing i had passion for and i love music and i love helping artists and i really when i was doing the compilations and signing bands i was really helping artists figure out the life that they wanted to have like you know come back to blue like you know i I wanted more anything in the world for someone like Blue or a band like Wheat to be successful and be art, you know, and, and be artist and make art, you know. Yeah. So even though Blue isn't um, as wealthy, let's say maybe he is, I don't know, as John Mayer, that he's actually um, has a career doing what he wants. That makes me really happy. I wish we could have gotten him further. But what's happened is, at you know, I was a gatekeeper. I could find an artist that I loved and say I can help you. I can make you huge. Um, you can't do that anymore. Like I can find the best artists in the world, and the the, the good news is is that the people out there decide what's good and what's bad, or what's reactive, maybe more than that. So it's it's really more the industry change that um, I couldn't find a great artist and actually help them like I used to, and that and that drove me crazy because if I if I get involved, I want to help them have the life they want. Mm-hmm. So I sort of took a backseat, learned more about what's what in the world you can do to help people have the best life possible. So I went back to Penn. Gotcha. And, and, and so now if I, if I see that, that lane again in the music business where I can actually really help these artists again, yeah. I will jump back in. But I, I, I think there's been this weird moment in time as everything is fully shifted to online where you can't monetize stuff. And it's actually really hard to get stuff that's great um, noticed like it should. Yeah. Um, once again, I, I'm not complaining about it. I just chose not to fight that. But, yeah. but so like I said, I, I actually think it's good the way everything has evolved. But I, I think you put it a good way. It's like, you know, I think there's like this waiting out a little bit of this stuff is going to help me see where I want to go next. But but at the end of the day, I like to help people. And so that's what I do every day. I help entrepreneurs yeah. and, and, and students figure out what it is they should do with their life and how to be successful. Yeah. And what's amazing to me, I mean, I think it's a real testament to the passion that musicians have is that even though the music business is a a shell of its former self, there's still so many musicians trying to to figure it out. And so to me, that's really inspiring. It's like, yeah, you don't sell CDs anymore, but you can still play shows and license music. And and there's a path out there, albeit a, a much more arduous path than before maybe no totally and and it's you definitely have to think about it differently like uh, i was just with do you ever know the band vertical horizon uh sounds familiar i'm, I'm not that familiar they, with they, them to be honest they, they were on the second compilation you know, okay. they sold over a million albums i was with the lead okay. singer and um and so we were talking about that like you know he could go play a show and sell you know 200 CDs, you know, and make two grand off yeah. that. Plus, yeah. plus make five grand for playing the show. So it's like, you know, you take the CD part off, 
you just take that off the table. Um, so it's just, it's just made it different. Um, music's more accessible and there's more out there. So there's more to cut through. So I, my, my, if I have a role in the future, it's going to be, I think there's a lot, I assume you're involved with this. There's a lot of great music being made that no one's hearing Absolutely. because what's getting heard is what reacts and what reacts doesn't mean that it's good, but there's no, there's not going to be a system. There's no system in place, nor should there be that like sort of, um, figures out what's good and bad, right? It's just sort of like what people react to. So my, my, and I, and I keep, coming in onto artists who actually are really good who need help who are not getting help because they're not making enough money so no one's going to help them so that's if there's a sweet spot that i hope i can help it's like it's it's those artists that are working hard um making music working hard online but need some sort of professionalization for a minute so that's where i'm kind of trying to see if there's a if there's a sweet spot for helping those artists to get them up to another level yeah, it seems like there would it seems like there's a way, you know, maybe on the tech side. I kind of had this brainstorming session with a friend of mine a few weeks ago and we kind of both arrived at the same premise which is can't the music industry figure out a way to force people to buy music? Isn't there some sort of a an algorithm? Well, there, it, read today's, you know, Wall Street Journal, I mean, about Spotify and that's the, the, the biggest pro there's two big problems that are being, and I'm not an expert on this, and I, you know, so, um, you know, there's, there's two big problems. One is the, the, the free model on Spotify yeah. goes yeah. forever. So people aren't forced to buy. Yeah. There's no incentive. And, and then the other problem is you can get it for free on YouTube. So those are going to be solved in the future, it's how long does that take? Yeah. So yeah. we have to retrain people to have to monetize it. You know, Netflix is massive. Um, I mean, p- part of the problem is the way we consume music. Um, like, like you ha- I have to, if, if I want to watch certain shows on Netflix, I have to buy a Netflix, right? right? I can't get right. those shows. They have original content. And this is, we talk about my class. I mean, Part of the problem with the music business is is all these streaming services are all the same thing. You know, they may carry different, you know, more stuff or whatever. You know, Entitle tried to combat this, but like, you know, none of them have original content for the most part. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's going to take a while to shake this out, but I do think that when we get enough people paying something five, six, seven bucks a month, there's it's going to change. You know it's going to be a massive difference. Yeah. No, that's a really, and and we'll kind of end on this note. I know you have to run, but that's an interesting point about Netflix. I mean, I have a Netflix subscription, um, but I don't have a premium Spotify subscription, you know? Oh, you don't need it. I don't need it. You're not forced to. But Netflix actually creates really good, like, I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things and Sensei. There's a ton of, like, original content. Yeah. It's actually really, really good that you can only watch on Netflix. Yeah, it's a really good point. Totally. And Amazon's going to that with Prime and Hulu overnight is going to original content. So, and 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 the, you will see at some point, um, you know, Apple or Spotify signing artists, and then and then that will change things. So it's going to take a while for that to happen, but at some point when when the streaming services are the only place you're listening to music, you will see that. Um, 
yeah. whether it be two or three services like we have in the, on the on the you know digital side, the film side, and TV side, that is where music will go. But the labels have kept control, like for a long. It's 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 a longer conversation, but like at some point, it's got to go that way to be successful. I think. Yeah. It's and by the it, way, maybe you merge. Maybe 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 Apple buys you know Atlantic. I don't know, but somehow that's going to have to happen. Right. Right. To really make it where you say, okay, I don't need Spotify Premium. Now you say, okay, if I want this i need to i have to have apple and maybe you'll have maybe you'll have two maybe you'll have apple and spotify because between those two you get everything you need right it's almost like you have to to incentivize it has to be easier to pay for music than to get it for free and right now it's not hence the reason nobody seems to buy music anymore we we have spotify premium my kids end up using youtube yeah that's where i listen to most music these days yeah i mean as we go 100 percent mobile um, uh, it, it all it, it all shakes out, but the, the bottom line is I do I do think the music business music is bigger than ever. If you look at the you know you look at artists versus even actors and and celebrities and stuff like the, the musicians have the biggest followings online for, for social media. So yeah, the 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 footprint is massive. So it just it's just it's just we're lagging a bit here in the monetization of of how their art gets taken care of. And so once that gets a little bit better solved, then it allows kind of coming full circle back to the, 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 the smaller artists out there. It'll give them a better chance to earn a living. You know, um, that's the biggest issue is like, there's this massive, the, the middle class is completely gone from the music business right now. So yeah. my hope yeah. is that we take some of the stuff from the long tail and bump that up enough. So if you want to be a, an artist making a living, um, you know, Instead of, you know, living hand to mouth and having two jobs, hopefully you can actually do well enough as an artist. There's going to be so many different ways to make money. Um, you know, you, you may not be making ten million dollars a year, but you know, you can make, you can have a good life at a lower level being an artist. I mean, lower level in the food chain of, of yeah. the music industry, yeah. but still, but still be high enough that you're, you know, you are living well, having a family, having a house, and and living the life you want. So that that to me is where we need to get back to, and we were there back in the heyday of CDs. Um, and we'll get back. You know, streaming, I, I do think, will work yeah. at some point. Well, like you, I'm very optimistic. And, and like I said, just the fact that there's so many musicians who just don't give up. They're so tenacious and resilient. Oh. I, I think at some point, it. I mean, it has to improve, right? I don't think it, get, it can get any worse. Well, like I said the good news is it's it's bigger than ever. The bad news yeah. is is that it's not um, being monetized as well as it should. And you know everyone did the. It's like you know some people fault the major labels, all the Napster stuff. Like everyone did what they thought was right at the time, but no one knew completely what the future was. No one, no one. You you, you can't. Consumers are telling us what they want, and that all takes a while to then catch up. So right. there's a lot that needs to be caught up, and it will be. But at the end of the day, as long as we put artists first, um, I, I I think everyone will be okay. You know, so I'm with you, man. Greg, I really go. I really appreciate you doing no this. Problem. I know you've got to run. I will uh, I'll send this to you once it's up on iTunes. Uh, cool. Thanks so much for doing this, Greg. No problem, man. Thanks. Yep. Take care.